The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Cousin Blount, let me be advertised from you by this bearer with all speed how the matter doth stand. For as the cause and manner thereof her death doth marvelously trouble me, considering my case many ways, so shall I not be at rest till I may be ascertained thereof. Praying you, even as my trust in you, do not dissemble with me, neither let anything be hid from me, but send me your true opinion of the matter, whether it happened by evil change or by villainy, and fail not to let me hear continually from you. And thus fare you well, in much haste from Windsor, this day in September in the evening, your loving friend and kinsman, much perplexed, R.D. A letter from Lord Robert Dudley from The Death of Amy Robsart, an Elizabethan Mystery by Sarah Beth Watkins. Welcome, Murder Bookies, to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. This is episode 71, The Original Staircase, on the death of Amy Robsart and Elizabethan Mystery by Sarah Beth Watkins. I'm your host, Jill, and I bring you the best true crime books, releasing episodes every two weeks. So read along with me and share your thoughts with me on X, aka Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I really love hearing from you. And a huge announcement. If you don't know already, I am on podcast row at CrimeCon 23 in Orlando, September 22nd to 25th. We did it. We did it. After CrimeCon Las Vegas last year, I vowed to be on podcast row next year, and we did this together. We have grown, we have improved, and I cannot thank you enough for listening, downloading, doing five-star reviews. I am so proud of what we have accomplished together. I am just glowing. So if you're at CrimeCon, make sure you come by and say hello. I can't wait to meet you face-to-face and to talk. And get your merch at my Spreadshop page. The link is on my blog. Or just Google Murder Shelf Book Club Spreadshop and find me and let's take some photos. This is going to be great. All right. Our book today is pure indulgence for me. I love my Tudor history. And this death inquiry has launched centuries of debate by historians. Sarah Beth Watkins begins the book by telling us about Lady Amy Robsart, the wife of Robert Dudley, an important player in the court of Elizabeth I. And on September 8, 1560, Amy was residing at a friend's home in Cumnor Place near Oxford and was found at the bottom of the stairs, dead. Amy was 28 years old when she died and had been married to Robert for 10 years. Much of their marriage was fraught with tension, uncertainty, and tragic turns of events, as we're going to see. Now, you know, I do a lot of research constructing these episodes. There is another book. Amy Robsart, A Life and Its End by Christine Hartwig. 
and it gave me wonderful information and insights as well. So thank you, Christine Hartwig. Both of these books are incredible reads, and repeating myself as I always do, you really should read the book. But, but, but before we get ahead of ourselves, I always feed you before we delve into the book. Since we are set in historic Tudor England, I decided to find a wonderful recipe that related homemade sausage rolls. All right, this recipe is a little bit more complicated than some that I've brought to you, but honestly, after you've rolled one roll, you just repeat it and it's a snap. It takes about 15 minutes. You begin with puff pastry, thawed, which you can find in the frozen section of most grocery stores. Then you pick up your favorite kind of sausage, whether it's Italian, maple, apple, whichever you prefer. Remove it from the casings and mix it with the herbs, pepper, thyme, sage, a couple others, and some breadcrumbs. You cut the pastry to size, and then you divide up the sausage rolls and it's shaped like a log. Plop it into the puff pastry, seal it, and then use an egg wash on the seal. Repeat, make up the other rolls, then pop them into the oven at 400 degrees for roughly 30 minutes. You can serve warm with a mustard or a chutney. These can be frozen in advance of being cooked or uncooked, and it makes eight large sausage rolls. Now, as an appetizer, I cut each roll into four to five pieces. It just tastes amazing, and it's really not that bad to make them. Now, of course, we need a delicious wine as the perfect accompaniment. So I found Karen Birmingham Clarksburg's Pinot Grigio 2022 at my favorite wine club, Naked Wines. It's not uncommon to pair any kind of sausage with a red wine. Perfectly fine. But I wanted something a little lighter, a little fresher. So this tropical white is bright, juicy, with splashes of lemony lime on your taste buds, followed by a lively finish. I really like the layers of flavor in this one. And Karen Birmingham Clarksburg is also the winemaker of the year. So it's not a surprise that this is such a nice wine. Really flows beautifully with the sausage rolls. And in the store, this Pinot Grigio goes about $20 a bottle. And when you become a naked wine angel, it's $12.99. Hey, that's, that's almost the price of another bottle of wine. So it's quite the savings. So bon appetit and let our book club begin. Our author, Sarah Beth Watkins, whom I am very familiar with being a Tudor history buff, grew up in Richmond, Surrey, and began soaking up history from a very early age. A prolific writer, she's had a ton of articles published over the last two decades. Her published history books are Lady Catherine Knowles, The Unacknowledged Daughter of Henry VIII, The Tudor Brandons, Catherine Abaranza, Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scots, Anacles, and Sir Francis Bryan. I have to admit I have read most of these. I kind of like her writing style. It's straightforward, not stuffy, although she blends the primary sources into the mix seamlessly. All right, anyway, let's get into our Elizabethan mystery that's had historians debating for over 500 years. So who is this Amy Robsart? Well, we actually know her birth date, which is very rare in the 16th century, especially for women. Born to Sir John Robsart and Elizabeth Scott Robsart of Stanfield Hall, June 7, 1532. Amy was their only legitimate child. She did have a bastard brother, Arthur Robsart. She also had four half-siblings, 
the Appleyards from her mother's previous marriage. Amy met her future husband, Robert Dudley, when he, his father, John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, and brothers John and Ambrose were en route to subdue 1547's Ket's Rebellion. What was Ket's Rebellion? Okay, so briefly. During the reign of Edward VI, who was king at the time, land reforms were instituted. This enclosure of waste and common land would deny the average person use of this land, and people felt strongly that they were being denied their rights of access and privilege. Rebels rose up and attacked, quote, important lords, end quote, who are the wealthy landowners. Led by Robert Kett, they managed to seize Norwich before being put down by the Earl of Warwick and his men. Tried for treason, Kett and many others were hanged. Fun fact, Robert Kett was Amy's mother, Elizabeth Robsart's brother-in-law from her previous marriage. These family trees are large and the roots tangle you up in all kinds of this crap. So get ready. The Robsarts were of a lower social class than the Dudleys, you know, the dad being the Earl of Warwick. And while most marriages of the nobility were arranged, this was a carnal marriage or a lust marriage because Amy and Robert had fallen in love. About a year later, they were married. Well, being the fifth son, it probably allowed some flexibility in this particular choice of wife. And Amy is marrying into one of England's most powerful families. And she must have been delighted with her good fortune, love, power, and wealth. Now, the same day that they wed, Robert's oldest brother, John, so the heir, married and politically very well. His bride is Anne Seymour the eldest daughter of the Duke of Somerset, Edward Seymour, who is the Lord Protector of the Child King, Edward VI. Edward Seymour is also the King's mother's eldest brother. So Edward VI is his nephew. And the bride, Anne Seymour, is the King's first cousin. So this is a very important political match. And also because Somerset and the Earl of Warwick were friends, but also political rivals. Now, to follow all of this, I have put a few family trees on my blog so that you can see all these family connections, which kind of makes it easier to imagine all of it. And, you know, my blog is at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Now, I kept everything on one page. I didn't want to divide it up into pictures and trees and all of that. So be prepared to do a lot of scrolling. Literally, a few weeks after Kett's rebellion, but before the weddings, Warwick overthrew Somerset's protectorate of their young king, Edward VI, and Somerset, Edward Seymour, is thrown into prison. Nice friend, right? And I'm sure the family holidays were a blast after this, right? Can you imagine getting together with everyone, you know, past the venison? Edward Seymour would eventually be released, and then the marriage of their children symbolized this renewed friendship between the Dudleys and the Seymours. And 12-year-old King Edward VI attended the weddings, so they had ironed out all of their difficulties, right? No, not, not really. Now, Amy and Robert go off to live with his parents. John Dudley is now the Duke of Northumberland. Interesting how that worked out. And he is now in charge of the young king. John Dudley takes over advising him, and his son Robert is given various duties like master of the buckhounds. 
But in a court with a young unmarried king, Amy is left without a role. So she goes and lives with her in-laws in London. Then in 1552, when Edward VI was 14, the Duke of Northumberland had Somerset again arrested, this time with more political drama, 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 and it results in Somerset being beheaded. And now, clearly, Northumberland is enjoying his power. But this success comes to a screeching halt when 15-year-old King Edward VI passes away July 6, 1553, probably from pulmonary tuberculosis. His sister, Lady Mary, is next in line for the throne, according to Henry VIII's will. This casts Amy and the Dudleys into life-altering tumult. But, but, but wait, before we get too much further into this whole next bit of history, let's see how we got to this place and who the major players are in this Tudor Game of Thrones. And this comparison is not an exaggeration. All right, so this story is set in the beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I in her court. So how do we get from Edward to Elizabeth? Okay, Elizabeth comes to the throne after Edward's death, followed by Mary's death. She is crowned queen in 1559, the last of the Tudor dynasty. Very few ever anticipated that she would actually reach this pinnacle of royal power. Her father, Henry VIII, was the second son of Tudor dynasty founder Henry VII. As the spare heir, so think of Prince William and Prince Harry back in the day, Henry VIII was also not expected to rule. His father, Henry VII's claim to the throne was through his mother, Margaret Beaufort, which is a bastard line, although they had been legitimized. Now her son, Henry VII, wins the throne on the battlefield, toppling the last Plantagenet king, Richard III, his cousin, in the final battle of the War of the Roses. This civil war of the Lancaster and York sides of the family had been tearing England apart for three decades and rendered a literal pruning of the family tree. To unite each side in the War of the Roses, Lancastrian Henry VII married Elizabeth of York, the daughter of Plantagenet King Edward IV, who was Richard III's brother. You know, if you actually like this episode, maybe I'll do one on the lost princes in the tower. But that's another story and, and mystery, and I digress. But anyway, so Elizabeth of York and Henry VII go on to have four surviving children, Arthur, Margaret, Henry, and Mary. Now, their heir is eldest son, Arthur, who was 15 years old when his arranged marriage to the Spanish Infanta, 16-year-old Catherine of Aragon, was held. Catherine of Aragon is the daughter of the most powerful and Catholic rulers in Europe, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain. But wed five months, Prince Arthur and Princess Catherine contracted a deadly 16th century illness, a sweating sickness, with Arthur dying. Deeply grieving, the spare younger brother, 10-year-old Henry, was now the heir to the throne. Seven years of limbo and negotiation pass, and after the death of Henry VII, with papal permission, given the bride's previous marriage to Prince Arthur, newly ascended King Henry VIII and Princess Catherine were married and were crowned together in Westminster Abbey. The young king and queen set off to build a great renaissance in England, 
bringing in artists, musicians, and humanists, and everything went splendidly except for one significant problem. After many, many, many pregnancies, the royal couple had only one living child, Princess Mary, a girl. And although Mary is the granddaughter of Isabella of Castile, who ruled in her own right, a woman had never ruled in England, and this was just unthinkable. At the same time that the seriousness of having no male heir becomes pressingly apparent to Henry VIII, he fell in love with one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. Suddenly, lightning struck, and Henry understood the biblical passage of Leviticus. If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing, and they shall be childless. Well, it was clear to Henry that marrying Catherine had been an affront to God, and this was obvious because of the deaths of all of their desperately desired and needed sons. So remember the context, too. Three decades of civil war ends with Henry VII, only 20-something years earlier. Henry VIII needs a son to inherit to maintain the stability of the country. A daughter inheriting? Oh, no, no, that, that, that didn't work. And then England would become part of some other empire as well. So if Mary married a French prince, England becomes part of France. So without a son from Catherine, a battle of wills erupts that is known as the King's Great Matter. First, Henry appealed to the Pope for an annulment from Catherine. This is not unheard of. Bearing a son and heir is the number one job of the Queen. Nevertheless, the Pope vacillated for years. Now, Catherine's nephew was the all-so-powerful Charles V, the ruler of Spain, the Netherlands, and the German Habsburg Empire. And he happened to have taken the Pope captive, so the Pope wasn't about to rule in the negative for Charles V's favorite auntie. Catherine just out and out refuses any, any talk of an annulment or divorce, insisting that she and first husband Arthur had not consummated the marriage, so no sex and that she went to Henry's bed a virgin and is Henry's true wife, and she would never veer from this position. By now, Henry VIII is utterly besotted with Anne Boleyn and desperately horny as she refuses to become his mistress. Anne was holding out for a crown and legitimate children or nothing. So finally, Henry VIII breaks with the Catholic Church, making himself the head of the Church of England, as major religious, political, and social battles between Protestantism and Catholicism ignite in England, just like it was going on across Europe. Catherine is now known as the Princess Dowager, and their daughter Mary was declared illegitimate. Henry and Anne Boleyn were quietly wed, a marriage that was approved and declared valid by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And later that year, Anne Boleyn gives birth to daughter Elizabeth who is not the long-awaited son, and therefore Elizabeth is never expected to rule England. Well, disappointed, the couple was sure that the next time it would be a boy. Anne Boleyn would experience two miscarriages over the next couple years as tensions began to rise between the couple. Meanwhile, religious reform is enacted, 
as Henry's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, began to dissolve the Catholic monasteries, shifting all of the wealth to the crown. Queen Anne, however, objects. She wants some of this wealth going towards education and to the poor. And thus, she came into direct conflict with Chief Minister Cromwell. Another miscarriage later, and Henry has had enough of this woman that he has raised up so high. Anne Boleyn and five men were accused of treason and adultery, honestly ridiculous charges, but they were nevertheless tried and convicted. The men were executed, and one of them was her own brother, George Boleyn. So yes, they are accusing them of incest. The scandal was staggering. The day after, Anne was beheaded at the Tower of London on May 19, 1536. Elizabeth was two years old and made illegitimate. Less than two weeks later, Henry VIII marries his third wife, Lady Jane Seymour. I already mentioned her brother, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset. Plain and demure, Queen Jane was the opposite of intelligent and fiery Anne Boleyn, and Jane did work quietly to reconcile Henry with his eldest daughter, Mary, who is eventually forced to submit, admitting her parents' marriage was invalid and that her father is the head of the Church of England. Her guilt over this for betraying her now-deceased mother, Catherine of Aragon, lasted her entire life. Religious reform continues triggering a significant rebellion called the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was brutally suppressed in 1537. In October of that year, Queen Jane gave birth to the long-awaited son and heir, Edward VI. But Jane would die in childbirth fever or some other ailment after this triumph. Utterly crushed, Henry and his ministers realized that much rests upon the slender shoulders of one small son, so a spare heir is needed. Minister Cromwell arranges a political union with Protestant Germany's Anna of Cleves, and this proved to be a disaster. Henry liked her not. His new wife was unattractive, with sour smells about her, and in short time, Queen Anna was persuaded to accept a divorce settlement becoming an incredibly wealthy woman and was henceforth known as the king's sister. And um, not long after Cromwell was beheaded, Henry promptly dives headfirst into a full-blown midlife crisis, marrying 16- or 17-year-old noblewoman Catherine Howard. Vivacious, flirtatious, fun, Catherine Howard was Henry's rose without a thorn who really revitalized the 49-year-old king. Now obese, old, his leg ulcerated, seeping with pus and horrible stench, it likely stemmed from a jousting accident where his horse had fallen on top of him, rendering him unconscious back in 1536. Now completely infatuated with his young queen, he showered her in jewels and clothes and anything else she wanted. Now, New Queen Catherine did give it a good try, but she was doomed. As barely a teenager, only a few years before her marriage, she had had two lovers. When this secret was revealed, the king refused to believe it, launching into an investigation, which concluded not only had Catherine Howard not been chased prior to her marriage, she had met in private with one of her husband's courtiers, Thomas Culpepper. Now, whether they were intimate or not is uncertain, 
but a letter from Catherine to Thomas was found with her signing it, quote, yours as long as life endures, end quote. Well, she was beheaded 18 months after her wedding, and that is the second wife of Henry VIII's to be beheaded. Do you see why I love this era? It's just, you can't make this stuff up. It's so real. But needing companionship, Henry VIII's final wife was the twice-married Lady Latimer, Catherine Parr, a 31-year-old devout reformer. Queen Catherine K.P., as she signed her name, was the consummate stepmother to young Edward and Elizabeth and a friend to Lady Mary. A good wife who supported Protestant reforms, Catherine served as regent when Henry went to war against France in 1544, and she aptly governed as she held the reins of power. She would go on to publish two books in her own name, a first in English history. Now, Catherine came under suspicion of being a Protestant heretic in 1546, with Henry signing an arrest warrant, but the queen was able to reconcile with him, assuring that her arguing with him was only done so that she could learn from him and to distract her husband from his pain. Well, the next day, guards came to serve the warrant, and Henry flew into a rage, calling them knaves. Not long after, in January 1547, Henry VIII would die and leave his throne to his nine-year-old son, Prince Edward, if Edward died without issue, to Lady Mary, and if she died without issue, finally, to Elizabeth. Now, the Protestant Reformation kicks into full swing with child king Edward VI ascension. So it's essentially his uncle, Protestant Edward, Duke of Somerset, who I've mentioned, who serves as the Lord Protector. When Edward would fall fatally ill, he did not want his religious reforms reversed by his heir, Catholic Sister Mary. So he drew up his device for the succession, and under the influence of John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, Edward declares his heir to be the Protestant granddaughter of Henry VIII's youngest sister, Mary, once Queen of France. So he leaves the throne to his cousin, Lady Jane Grey. 1553, Jane is declared queen with the English people very confused. Who? Who's queen? Oh, and, and did I mention that John Dudley just happened to have married Lady Jane Grey to his son, Robert Dudley's brother, Guilford? Okay, so this stinks to high heaven. There's some debate among historians, but I believe that Dudley was trying to found his own royal dynasty taking the throne by marrying Jane to Guilford. However, Catholic Mary did not get the memo, and Northumberland fails to secure Mary's person. She rose up, declared herself queen, rallied her supporters, and Queen Jane's reign lasted nine days as she was deposed and sent to a prison room in the Tower of London. John Dudley was executed and all of his sons, Guilford, Robert, John, Ambrose, all sent to the tower, branded traitors. During this time, Amy was allowed to visit her husband, but life had changed vastly. She is married to traitor, and she married into a traitorous family. Now, the first queen regent of England, Mary I, would begin marriage negotiations to marry her Spanish cousin, Philip II a very unpopular move in xenophobic England. Wyatt's rebellion is triggered because of the Queen's betrothal and her Catholic religion, which is eventually defeated. 
And stupidly, Lady Jane Grey's father participated in Wyatt's rebellion and ensured that Jane Grey, Guilford Dudley, and he were executed. Also implicated in the plot was Mary's younger Protestant sister, Elizabeth. Sent to the Tower of London, an investigation and interrogation began, with Elizabeth uncertain of living or dying. Robert Dudley was held at the Tower at the same time, and, quote, their bond would become unbreakable, end quote. He is living with the executioner's axe hanging over him, just like Elizabeth is. Finally released when no evidence was produced, Elizabeth withdrew to bide her time at Hatfield in the country. After a phantom pregnancy, Mary I thought she was pregnant and she wasn't, but you have all the physical symptoms, it would be clear that Mary was not going to have a Catholic child to secede her, and the wheel of fortune turned in Elizabeth's favor. Mary died on November 17, 1558, and Elizabeth ascended to the throne. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, she declared on learning she was queen, coming to the throne against all the odds. And a little bit of backstory about Robert Dudley. His grandfather had been a minister of Henry VII, and he, the grandfather, was executed by Henry VIII on his ascension. So that means that three generations of Dudleys had been found guilty of treason. Grandfather, father, and brother, all executed. Not an auspicious biography. Nevertheless, Robert Dudley was besides Elizabeth I, as she wrote into London on November 28, 1558, and then later at her coronation in January. Now, a week after King Charles III's coronation last May, I was at Westminster Abbey and I saw everything. The coronation chair dating back to 1066, the anointing screen, the whole thing. Ancient, important, breathtaking. Westminster Abbey was just overwhelming with these thousand plus years of history. And I, I did put a couple of these photos on my blog as well. It was the trip of a lifetime for me. Anyway, young, beautiful, vivacious, 25-year-old virgin Protestant Queen Elizabeth was now urged by her advisors to marry, secure her throne, and provide a Tudor heir. Catching a major theme here about having the heir to the throne, right? But let's think about this for a second. What has Elizabeth I learned growing up in uncertainty and terror? Her mother Anne Boleyn and cousin Catherine Howard were both executed by Elizabeth's father. She saw two queens, stepmother Jane Seymour and later Catherine Parr, who happened to marry the younger Seymour brother, Thomas, in undue haste after Henry VIII's death, die in childbirth. Anacles was rejected and divorced, embarrassed across the continent, although her story ends well. So might this have impacted Elizabeth's point of view on marriage and childbirth? Spoiler, Elizabeth is highly inclined not to risk marriage unless her realm is at stake, and she would share none of her power or authority with the husband to whom she would be beholden, queen or not. Now, in real time, no one, of course, knows this, and her marriage is anticipated to be pending, save for naming the actual groom. So in this highly exciting and anxious situation, Elizabeth has one favorite with her, above them all, whom she's deeply in love with, 
Lord Robert Dudley. Listen, I know it's a lot of history and names and relationships to take in, but you'll now understand the musical six. So I have linked a song from this musical in my show notes too. So enjoy that one on me. Just realize Elizabeth had a rough childhood and all this religious upheaval has very real consequences. Being Protestant or Catholic at the wrong time, you could lose your livelihood or your life. Talk about being canceled. And this is where the death of Amy Robstart, an Elizabethan mystery, begins. So marriage proposals are coming in from across Europe. Eric of Sweden is suggested. Some think ex-brother-in-law Philip II would be the perfect groom. And Elizabeth is vacillating as, quote, she moved Dudley into the apartments next to her own and spent her days in his company, and it didn't go unnoticed, end quote. The Spanish ambassador reporting on Robert Dudley, writing, quote, It is generally stated that it is his fault that the queen does not marry, and that she is playing with fire if she married the said Lord Robert. She will incur so much enmity that she may one evening lay herself down as Queen of England and rise up the next morning as plain Madam Elizabeth. It is a marvel that he has not been slain long ere this, end quote. Ooh. Okay, that's pretty damning. Kate Ashley, who had been Elizabeth's governess and her companion since she was a tiny child, was really worried about this closeness between Elizabeth and Robert. Cat had been dragged into a scandal after Catherine Parr married the younger Seymour brother, Thomas. Teenage Elizabeth went to live with her stepmother, and Thomas Seymour began a dangerous flirtation with Elizabeth right under Catherine's nose, slapping her bottom by wearing only his nightshirt. Today, we would call this behavior grooming. Found embracing a then-pregnant Catherine Parr, sent Elizabeth to live elsewhere for her own protection. After Catherine Parr's death and childbirth, Thomas Seymour's ambition ran amok, and he looked to marry the princess, utterly lost his mind, and tried to kidnap his nephew, King Edward, to remove him from his brother, the Duke of Somerset's influence. Well, this went poorly. Tried for treason, the whole scandal comes out with the investigation into whether Elizabeth agreed to marry Thomas Seymour and usurp the throne from her brother, which is treason and punishable by death. As Elizabeth's lady, Kate Ashley was terrorized and was interrogated and thrown into the Tower of London. Well, in the end, nothing was found against Elizabeth while Thomas Seymour was executed. Yeah, I will not miss this, this psychopath. He is nuts. But both the king's uncles have now been executed. Now, Kate Ashley saw her beautiful Elizabeth amazingly come to the throne, but failing to notice the warning lights as she continues to favor Robert Dudley and considers marrying him. Elizabeth is not impressed with Kat's warning, insisting angrily, quote, If she showed herself gracious towards her master of the horse, he had deserved it for his honorable nature in dealing. She was always surrounded by her ladies of the bedchamber, who at all times could see whether there was anything dishonorable between her and her master of horse. If she had ever found pleasure in such a dishonorable life, she did not know anyone who could forbid her, end quote. So Elizabeth is making no apologies, and she would change nothing. Now, about this time, a new Spanish ambassador arrived in court, Bishop Alvaro de la Cuadra, 
who said the same thing as his predecessor, quote, there is not a man in England who does not cry out upon him as the queen's ruin, end quote. So there is evidence of enormous speculation and rumors floating around about Elizabeth and Dudley and that marriage to Robert Dudley would be her undoing. Now, working for the Queen was a time-consuming, all-encompassing responsibility, and Robert did not have time for his wife, Amy. He did try to make a home for her and buy Dudley Castle, but the deal fell through. So she's going to remain at William Hyde's house from 1557 to 1559. The year she died, Robert visited her at Hyde's, bringing cooks, food, and expensive spices to please his friend and his wife, as was his custom. And then Amy would travel to London, to Camberwell, and then to her maternal family home without Robert, who was off at Windsor Castle for his investiture as a Knight of the Garter, which is a huge honor. Afterwards, they would spend some time together, but even so, you get the fleeting nature of their marriage. After stops at Suffolk and visiting a friend, Sir Richard Verney's home at Compton Verney, Amy would settle in at Cumnor Place in December 1559 with her devoted servant, Mrs. Picto. Sarah Beth Watkins points out that this travel by horse and possibly coach is physically taxing, and it does indicate that Amy Robsart must have been in fairly good health to accomplish it all in 1559. So her final home, Cumnor Place, was built in the 14th century and was used as a monastic retreat. A large house of gray stone, it had five wings that were constructed around an inner court. The surrounding area had a garden, fish ponds, and forest for deer hunting. It was then owned by William Owens, who rented it to Robert Dudley's steward of personal expenses, Anthony Forster. In addition to Forster's family, a number of other people were living in Cumnor Place. Anne Owens, the widow of William's father, Elizabeth Ogdingsells, the sister of William Hyde, William Higgins, and a bunch of other retainers. Amy's chamber in the home was the finest, fit for a lady, respectful of her rank, and was across from the great hall having its own entry and stairway. Robert Dudley remained about three miles away in Windsor, serving the queen and never discussing his wife at her command. September 8, 1560, the day Amy died, she insisted that everyone should leave Cumnor Place to attend the Abington Fair. Quote, she would not that day suffer one of her own sort to tarry at home and was so earnest to have them gone, end quote. So she's adamant that she wants to remain home and that everyone else should leave. Well, that is kind of odd, and it was rather uncommon. I mean, what was the urgency to be home alone? Well, we'll get more into that later. Now, I got to say, a Renaissance fair is nothing like the 21st century Renaissance fair. Although it occurs once a year, this one celebrated the Feast of Our Lady and occurred over the course of a weekend or so. It was a shopping opportunity with goods, food, spices, cloth, all kinds of things coming up for sale from all over. Mrs. Ogdensells did not want to go that day. She wanted to go the next when she would not only be in the company of servants. But since Amy became so angry with her, Miss Ogdensells left with the rest, and Amy did agree to dine with her later that evening. But that dinner would never happen, as by the time they all returned, Amy was dead at the bottom of the stairs. 
an inquest would begin immediately, and given the gossip about the triangle of Elizabeth, Robert, and Amy, it was an ugly time for everybody. Now, a little context, too. Prior to Amy's death, there were a different sort of rumors going on about Robert and Amy Dudley. Five months before Amy's death, the Spanish ambassador, this time Count de Feria, wrote in April 1559, quote, Lord Robert has come into such favor that he does whatever he likes, and it is even said that Her Majesty visits him in his chamber day and night. People talk of this so freely that they go on to say his wife has a malady in one of her breasts, and that the Queen is only waiting for her to die to marry Lord Robert. End quote. Oof. The Venetian ambassador wrote similarly that Amy, quote, had been ailing for some time. If she were perchance to die, the queen might easily take him for her husband, end quote, meaning Robert. However, the new ambassador, Bishop de la Quadra, reported that Amy's health was actually improving. The ambassador of the Holy Roman Empire, Caspar von Brunner, reported about the same time, quote, it is said that he seeks to poison his wife, for he has intended a great favor with the queen, end quote. Further, von Brunner believed Elizabeth and Robert had a secret understanding. Now, after Amy's death in November, Quadra wrote, quote, that Lord Robert has poisoned his wife and that the queen was stalling over a potential marriage until this wicked deed of killing his wife is consummate, end quote. So they're talking about poisoning Amy, getting rid of Amy, conspiracy between Robert and the queen to kill Amy. Oh, boy. Quadra noted that many Englishmen would reject the idea of a King Dudley should the Queen decide to marry him. By March 1560, Quadra's reports were echoing Brunner's, as he describes Robert Dudley as, quote, the worst and most procrastinating young man I ever saw in my life, and not all courage and spirited. Not a man in England but cries at the top of his voice that this fellow is ruining the country with his vanity, end quote. Not popular. Quadra told others that he believed that eventually Robert would be found guilty of Amy's death and executed like everyone else in the family. He reported that Dudley anticipated that his status was to alter in the coming year as he was considering divorcing his wife. Of Elizabeth, he wrote, quote, The Queen has more than once been addressed and entreated by various persons to exercise more prudence and not give people cause to suspect her in connection with this man, whereas she has, with many oaths, exculpated herself. I now hear that the links grow in intensity with the lapse of time, End quote. So this is not a popular relationship based on the evidence that has survived. You know, the rumor mill of today might be wider and virtual via social media, but it's no less vicious. But were there truths in these claims and opinions? Hmm. So what was Robert Dudley doing immediately before Amy's demise? We know something from the written record. On Saturday, September 7th, 1560, Robert Dudley was out with the Queen, and he later wrote the Earl of Sussex, who was in Ireland on the Queen's business, about the Queen acquiring new horses. Well, bland, that sounds like a typical leather, nothing there to really see. But the following Monday, September 9th, 1560, Robert wrote to his cousin, Sir Thomas Blount, and I began this episode with part of that letter. 
Coincidentally, Thomas Blount was on his way to Cumnor Place, where Amy died. Robert wrote him, quote, Immediately upon your departure from me, there came a servant, Bose, by whom I do understand that my wife is dead, and as he saith, by a fall from a pair of stairs. The greatness and suddenness of the misfortune doth so perplex me, until I hear from you on how the matter standeth, or how this evil should light upon me, considering what the malice world will brute, as I can take no rest. And because I have no way to purge myself of malicious talk that I know the wicked world will use, but one, which is the plain truth be known, and now, as my special trust in you, that you will use all means you possibly can to learn the truth, whether it happened by evil chance or by villainy. End quote. So it seems very clear that Robert did not know of Amy's death on the 7th, but he certainly did on the 9th, and the tone changes completely. To me, this sounds like a stunned and puzzled husband, bewildered. I don't see red flags or mountains from this. I do recognize a concern about the impact of Amy's death in this manner on him, and historians have been critical of Robert Dudley because of this. But given the previous six months of gossip and rumors, I think he's being perceptive. This does not necessarily indicate guilt, however. Robert also tells his cousin Blount that he has written to the coroner, telling him to maintain all proper standards regarding Amy's body as the law demands. He also insists on an inquest with a jury of, quote, discreeteth and substantial men to search thoroughly and duly by all manner of examinations the bottom of the matter, end quote. So Dudley is saying he wants an investigation that follows the letter of the law. And by the time Blount arrives at Cromner Place, an inquiry is already underway. All right, about the coroner's jury. They are something like a grand jury deciding if a person should be committed to trial in connection with a death. Such a jury was made up of up to 23 men and required the votes of 12 to render a decision. So it's kind of similar to a grand jury, but the coroner's jury only accused. It did not convict. All right, to me, this does not sound like a politically connected guy looking to cover up some foul deed unlike today when so many seem to try to cover their butts and they do so purely with hypocrisy. Dudley tells his cousin he's really troubled by the manner of death and he's not going to be able to rest until it's proven whether it happened by accident or by villainy. So that is by happenstance, she slipped or someone killed her. He's not ruling out a crime being committed either, but let's see where the evidence takes us. Now, Cousin Blunt, however, does not immediately go to Cumnor Place. Instead, he goes to an inn in Abington, where he basically asks, hey, what's going on? You know, what's the local news? And he was told, quote, there was fallen a great misfortune, no pun intended here, within three or four miles of the town, my Lord Robert Dudley's wife was dead. And I asked him what was his judgment and the judgment of the people. He said some were disposed to say well and some evil, unquote. The innkeeper himself thought it was misfortune, not evil doing, given the decency and honest reputation of Dudley's steward, Anthony Forster, who had been affiliated with the Dudleys for a long time. So Blunt came to be confident that if there was a hint of foul play, it would be uncovered. Meanwhile, Robert is impatiently waiting to find out what happened to Amy. 
Blount eventually responds to Robert's letter, telling him that at the Queen's command, Robert was to move to Kew House, a royal residence, and the jury was now working in secret. Now, Robert is anxious because as majestic as Kew House might be, he recognizes that he had been cast aside and exiled. What would this mean for his relationship with Elizabeth? Enter William Cecil, Elizabeth I's Secretary of State and most important advisor. He was one of the first to visit Dudley at you. It's likely Robert wanted Cecil to intercede with Elizabeth and to allow him to return to court. Because not being there does kind of look like he's guilty, right? But the evidence that we have about their conversation is this. After the visit, Robert wrote to Cecil the next day, and it is riddled with mistakes. I mean, what the heck was the man in shock? Also, Robert doesn't follow the custom of the day and write a draft. You would make your crossouts and changes and whatever, and then rewrite the letter to actually be sent. No, he sends the draft copy with corrections and crossouts and blots and the whole thing. He was certainly rattled or agitated or both. He thanks Cecil for the great friendship he has displayed, knowing that Cecil loathes Robert Dudley. He next writes that he would hate to have him here again, but he would welcome the visit. Then he says he appreciates Cecil's perspective on what he should do next, explaining that all this must be a dream, which tells us something of his mental state, which is not good. And he writes that he'd like to be far from this place because he has a duty to do. Finally, he asks Cecil to not forget him since he is out of sight in exile. Exiled. All right, this is really weird. It's, it's just odd that he would write these things when he knows Cecil really loathes him and doesn't want him anywhere near London. Cecil desperately wants him out of sight, out of mind, gone, and for the Queen to marry Archduke Charles of Austria. Now, Cecil returned to court and evidently shared some of his thinking with Ambassador Quadra. Well, how do we know? Quadra writes a September 11th dispatch, three days after Amy's death, saying that he has been told, quote, the Queen and Dudley were thinking of destroying Lord Robert's wife, but she was not ill at all. She was very well and taking care not to be poisoned, end quote. Now, earlier, Quadra had written about Amy taking caution against being poisoned. But continuing, Quadra writes that Elizabeth had been out hunting and when she returned said that Lord Robert's wife was, quote, dead or nearly so, end quote, and begged Quadra to be quiet until there was a formal announcement made. So this tells us that Elizabeth was informed of Amy's demise, but didn't have any details since Amy was found dead, certainly not nearly so or lingering. Now, eventually the Queen would make the formal statement, ordering the court into mourning, while Dudley's friends and the rest of the court all donned black. But great questions had to be asked here. Had Cecil pointed the finger at Dudley as the murderer to Quadra? Sure seems like it. Or was Cecil inflating the scandal so much that Robert Dudley would be tarnished and never be eligible to marry the Queen? Or was Quadra just making it up? Well, Cecil certainly isn't pleading Dudley's case to the Queen, that's for sure. Cecil wanted Elizabeth to marry for the good of her people to produce an heir which would stabilize the country. He had been pressing and pressing on this since her coronation, and he was her most trusted advisor. 
And in July 1560, Cecil had been sent to Scotland on a diplomatic mission, which had gone fairly well. When he returned, Cecil was alarmed and just beside himself at the increased intensity of Elizabeth and Robert's relationship. I mean, he could visibly see how things had shifted, and his diplomatic achievements were completely overshadowed by the Queen's preoccupation with Dudley. This would spell disaster for Elizabeth and England in his eyes. And it's kind of ironic that Elizabeth's nickname for Robert Dudley was her eyes. Now Amy's body was lying in state at Gloucester College for people to come and pay their respects. Both the Dudley and the Robsart family insignia draped her casket. A funeral procession on September 22nd went to the Church of St. Mary's in Oxford, with her brother John Appleyard walking in front of her casket, carried by eight yeomen and attended by many. Her chief mourner was Lady Marjorie Norris, the Queen's companion. Dudley spared no expense, and the church was draped in black. Dr. Francis Babington gave the sermon, and Dudley did not attend, as was the custom of the day. And this is where I will end part one, the original staircase on the death of Amy Robstart and Elizabethan mystery by Sarah Beth Watkins. A lot of background information, a lot of players and moving parts, but we can see there's some serious questions going on about what happened to this woman and how she died. Next, we're going to continue to examine the evidence, assemble a list of suspects, and examine the possible causes of death, accident, suicide, or homicide. Thank you for listening. I will see you at CrimeCon Orlando. Come say hi on Podcast Row. And right now, Murder Bookies, I need you to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. It's important for finding new Murder Bookies, so help me out if you can. As always, I am so appreciative that you give me your time and attention. It really keeps me going. I see you as you hear me. Join me on Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Murder Shelf Book Club for our Zooms. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, X, or whatever it is, or shoot me an email, jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I really love hearing from you. Subscribe so my episodes pop right into your feed. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material, snack and drink information, photographs, maps, charts, documents for the death of Amy Robsart, an Elizabethan mystery trilogy, is also found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena, lyrics by Otto Harbach.